This is available as a podcast and a webinar. This conference will now be recorded. Everyone, thank you for joining us uh, for today's session. This is Jury Selection Challenges for Cause. Uh, we're real excited about this. Um, there were some major changes recently on jury selection. Uh, so this is an important session. Uh, the materials have been emailed and are in judicial resources. As always, the CoJet certificate is uh, in the, uh, the last page of your materials. And our, uh, our first two presenters are going to be uh, Judge Frank Jones uh, from the Phoenix Municipal Court. Uh, those of us who've been with the county uh, have been with the Justice Courts in Maricopa County. Of course, remember uh, Judge Jones when she was a supervising prosecutor uh, in Maricopa County, and we lost her in 2020 to the Phoenix Municipal Court. So um, their pain was our loss. And Michelle Lawson is the uh, is a capital staff attorney with the Arizona Death Penalty Judicial Assistance Project. Uh, obviously, in death penalty cases, they put in a, a great deal of thought into juror selection. Uh, you can't imagine a more important uh, time to be picking uh, a jury carefully. Uh, so it is wonderful to have Michelle with us. And of course, Judge Huberman and I will be uh, chipping in at the end when we go through our scenarios. Uh, so we'll uh, take it, uh, we'll let uh, Lawson take it away. Thank you, Michelle. Okay, great. Thank you. So I wanted to talk this afternoon for about 20 to 30 minutes about how the elimination of peremptory challenges uh, has impacted jury selection and for cause challenges specifically. And so before I start, um, is there anyone who is having trouble seeing the PowerPoint? Um, okay, I'm going to assume that that's okay. So I'm going to talk in two parts. So I'm going to give a little bit of a background about the rule change petitions and the task force recommendations because they're important to the policies and the objectives of the rule changes. And then I'm going to talk about the standard for disqualification of prospective jurors under our rules, uh, the statutes, and case law. Um, so it all began um, with a petition to amend uh, the rules, and that was filed in January of 2021 by Judge Swan and Judge McMurdy. On March 10th, 2021, the Arizona Supreme Court created um, the task force on jury data collection practices and procedures. And then in the fall on August 30th and September 28th, um, before the task force gave its recommendations, the Supreme Court eliminated peremptory strikes effective January 1st, 2021. After that happened, after the, wait, I'm one. So the Arizona Supreme Court then also tasked the, um, the jury selection task force with making recommendations. 
and that task force issued two reports. The first was in October of 2021, and they addressed seven topics, including whether changes to the peremptory challenges should be made. They created a working group called the Statewide Jury Selection Work Group, and that work group reviewed the rules and recommended potential changes and best practices for jury selection and the development of educational programs. The, um, the report issued by the jury selection work group recommended robust jury selection procedures designed to uncover and elicit bias by doing three primary things. The first one I'm not going to talk about here today, and that is um, case-specific written questionnaires when feasible. Um, and then two, the two section, the two, other two recommendations that I'm going to talk about a little bit is permitting extended oral voir dire with increased participation by the attorneys with an emphasis on open-ended questions and discouraging attempts by trial judges to rehabilitate prospective jurors through leading and conclusory questions. So the Supreme Court adopted the amendments on an emergency basis. They're effective January 1st, 2021 and they apply to the Arizona criminal and civil rules and the justice court rules of civil procedure and the rules of procedure for eviction actions. So um, then, let me get to my next slide. So in Eliminating peremptory challenges, the Supreme Court indicated that it was persuaded that the most effective affair and a efficient procedure was to completely eliminate peremptory strikes and focus on sharpening the process for removing potential jurors for cause set related to conflicts of interest and personal biases that prevent impartiality. Um, our Chief Justice stated, by eliminating peremptory juror strikes, trial judges will need to ensure that litigators have time to develop and make appropriate arguments for removing jurors for cause. So the basis for um, striking jurors for cause are in Rule 18.4b and in our statutes. So Rule 18. Um, point 4B, there are no changes to it under the rule changes, and it says the court on motion or on its own must excuse a prospective juror jurors from service in the case if there is reasonable ground to believe that the juror jurors cannot render a fair and impartial verdict. Prior to the rule change, there was a large comment to this rule that laid out the basis for juror disqualification. Um, so the rule change eliminated that comment. However, uh, the basis for juror disqualification are stated in three Arizona statutes. The first statute addresses the grounds for qualified jurors and, and those are known by every, are clear, US citizens, residents of the jurisdiction that issued the summons, no felony convictions or restoration of civil rights, and um, a prospective juror cannot currently be adjudicated mentally incompetent or insane. And then in ARS 21202, it lists 
persons who may be excused from jury um, service related to a mental or physical condition, something that materially affects the public interest or welfare in an adverse manner, not currently capable of understanding the English language, undue or extreme financial or physical hardship, a peace officer, correctional officer, or someone who has been summoned in the in four years prior to the jury service. In ARS 21-22, the grounds for disqualification are listed. So a juror cannot serve, a person cannot serve on a jury if they are a witness in the action, if they are interested directly or indirectly in the matter under investigation. And on that point, the Arizona Supreme Court in State v. Eddington, well, first, um, the Court of Appeals held there was a juror on the panel who was employed by the same police agency that was investigating the case. So the Court of Appeals held that a peace officer currently employed by the same agency office or department that conducted the investigation in a criminal case must be stricken for cause and cannot serve. And so the Arizona Supreme Court affirmed that finding and um, concluded that the peace officer's employment required dismissal regardless of whether the officer believed he could be impartial. And so that was grounded in two reasons. One, the officer could not be fair and impartial. There was an outward appearance of interest in the matter under investigation. And also the officer might feel pressure to judge the credibility and conduct of his colleagues. Another purpose of the statute 21211 is to make sure that juror knowledge is limited to information presented at trial. And so the police officer by virtue of his employment may have information um, that would not have been presented at trial. But on that point, the Arizona Supreme Court said in another case that an experience with law enforcement or um, as a victim, an experience alone is not grounds uh, for dismissal. There has to be a showing that the juror cannot be fair and impartial. So under rule, criminal rule 18.5H, there, the party challenging a juror for cause has the burden to establish by a preponderance of the evidence that the juror cannot be, cannot render a fair and impartial verdict. And, in, and added to this rule, the rule change added in making its determination, the court must consider the totality of a prospective juror's conduct and answers given during four dear. And so when I read this rule, what I think about is that it gives a basis for making a clear record as to the reasons for the strike. So first is that the party, the attorney making the strike has to provide a basis um, under the preponderance of the evidence standard, which requires the fact finder to determine whether the facts sought to be proved is more probable than not. And then the Rule change also incorporates what is in um, our case law that 
courts consider the juror's conduct, credibility, and demeanor, as well as the answers given in identifying whether there are grounds to grant or deny the trial court. And our cases say that trial courts are in the best opportunity to observe jurors and make these findings. On appeal, the trial court's decision is reviewed for an abuse of discretion. And so what I'm saying here is I think it's important to be as detailed as possible in both what the juror specifically has said during voir dire and how the juror appears to the court um, in, in saying that he or she can be fair and impartial or cannot be fair and impartial, that there's a fact an issue in the case or important to the proceeding um, that the juror has a view about and cannot put aside in rendering a verdict. So the, um, the change in the justice court rules of civil procedure and also the rules of procedure for eviction actions is that it added this burden that the party challenging a juror for cause must demonstrate by a preponderance of the evidence that the juror cannot render a fair and impartial um, verdict. And then also it adds to those rules the case-specific questionnaires and um, that jurors may be challenged both on questionnaires and during the oral ordeal. So Arizona case law has a definition, you know, there are a number of cases, I thought these um, gave it clearly, a reasonable ground to believe that a juror cannot render a fair and impartial verdict may be shown by demonstrated bias or prejudice that renders the juror unable to listen to and evaluate the evidence presented. So it's not the fact of the juror's view, but whether the juror can set that view aside and consider the evidence. And so the court's opinions um, talk about an unqualified or a fixed opinion, um, meaning that the juror believes their view to be true and will consider it in rendering a verdict. And then the next question is the strength of that opinion. If it's less strong, it's qualified and the case law says the court will inquire into its strength and the information upon which it is founded. I think under the rule change, um, it's encouraging deference to the lawyers in questioning the jurors and rooting out the strength of a view and then um, presenting that to the court. And if so, if an opinion is fixed, if the juror can't set it aside, if it's important to the juror, if it's something they will bring into the jury room, then that is a basis for disqualification. Um, under Rule 18.5i, in criminal cases, the parties may stipulate to a removal of a juror. Um, as it stands right now, this rule is only in um, the criminal rules of procedure. It's not in the civil rules of procedure, um, but the um, that may change when the Arizona Supreme Court takes up uh, the rule changes in August. So criminal rule 18.5 addresses the procedures uh, for selecting a jury. And um, 
there are two things that I wanted to address with relation to the procedures under the criminal rules. Um, because this is where I see the ob objectives of the rules having shifted. The new rules emphasize that attorneys should conduct the voir dire and discourage the use of leading conclusory questions to rehabilitate jurors. So under Rule 18.5 in addressing voir dire examination, um, the change in the rule is that upon request, the court must allow the party sufficient time with reasonable limitations to conduct a further oral examination of the prospective jurors. A party's failure to submit questions to the court prior to the examination should not be grounds to deny a party the opportunity to conduct a oral voir dire. The questioning in voir dire must be limited to inquiries designed to elicit information relevant to a challenge for cause. And then the comment is what um, lays out the policy of the new rule. Where feasible, the court should permit liberal and comprehensive examination by the parties, refrain from imposing inflexible time limits, and use open-ended questions that elicit prospective jurors' narrative, views narratively. The court should refrain from attempting to rehabilitate jurors by asking leading conclusory questions that encourage prospective jurors to affirm that they can set aside their opinions and neutrally apply the law. So under Arizona case law, a juror's preconceived notions or opinions do not necessarily render that juror incompetent to fairly and impartially sit in a case. If a juror is willing to put aside his opinions and base his decision solely upon the evidence, he may serve. A juror can be rehabilitated through follow-up questions. And that's kind of where the meat of jury selection sometimes is, is whether a juror has been rehabilitated. And so with the shift to a deference to the lawyers um, conducting the question, the role of the trial court um, is always to protect the record, to make sure that the record is clear um, as to whether the juror can be fair and impartial uh, and to clarify and to seek to clarify questions asked by the lawyers and answers given by the jurors. And so, I mean, for instance, if the juror um, gives an answer to an attorney question that's not clear to follow up with the juror about what the juror meant or to follow up about what a, um, an attorney question meant. And then in the rehabilitation, when a juror provides a contradictory or equivocal answer, such as, I might be fair, I want to be fair, but I don't know, I'll try to be fair, the important role for the trial court, is always, as always, is determine what part of the juror's answers demonstrate that the juror can be fair and impartial. And in doing that, to avoid questions that are restatements of conclusions, such as you understand a defendant does not have to prove um, his innocence. And in, instead, to ask a more specific question to find out, uh, to, to make clear on the record that the juror has reconsidered a prior position of not being able to be fair and can be fair. 
and also on this point, it's insufficient um, to rehabilitation when a juror has given an equivocal answer to say to the entire panel, um, you know, please raise your hand or let me know if you cannot be fair and impartial. It, it should come from the specific juror. So both the rule changes in our case law um, discourages close-ended questions and um, emphasizes open-ended questions. And so if a juror says, I think I can be fair, that may not be enough to deny um, a motion to strike for cause. Um, as much information as can be obtained by specific questions that relate specifically to the jurors' views would be the preference in determining whether there's a basis for a challenge for cause. Um, and then also discouraging questions to the juror, um, you know, you could follow the law. Um, jurors should be struck for cause when their answers demonstrate serious misgivings about the ability about their ability to be fair and impartial. So some examples of questions, um, a close-ended question would be, you can set that view or opinion aside and follow the law correct. Um, and instead, um, a question that could be asked is, how does your view or opinion that you've discussed impact your view of the case as a way to get more information and to elicit why or why not the juror can be fair and impartial? Um, or another example is, do you believe that defendants in criminal trials who do not testify on their own behalf are probably guilty? So rather than giving the juror a conclusion that they just agree to, um, to try to elicit more information by a question such as, what would your impression be of defendants in criminal trials who do not testify in their own behalf? Oh, I've gone too far. So the rules were adopted on an emergency basis. Um, comments were filed um, and the task force filed a reply on June 1st and addressed um, the comments and made um, one proposed amendment um, for the Supreme Court to consider, and that is to clarify that the trial judge retains the ability to control voir dire and has the ability to preclude excessive, abusive, or improper questions. And then the reply also notes that a goal is the uniformity of the rules. For instance, the civil rules do not have, do not address stipulating to the removal of a juror, so including that. Um, there may be a challenge, uh, there may be a lawsuit filed by a party challenging the elimination of peremptory challenges. Um, if it's a filed in justice court, it may reference this statute, section 22223, which authorizes peremptory challenges in justice court civil cases. Um, you know, presumably the courts will find that the elimination of peremptory challenges is under the court's rulemaking authority. Um, and so the statute would be struck, but um, there, may be, there may be litigation on that. I looked up the bill that was pending and that appears for now at least to be um, no longer viable. And so I don't wanna 
go over on time. I included two cases. Actually, I saw them in another PowerPoint, and I thought they um, were good. So this first is an old Arizona case, and it just shows how it's um, how the juror and um, the lawyer or the court can be saying different things. Um, and so the voir dire, the challenge for cause, the denial of the challenge for cause was upheld in this court, uh, in this case, but it may not be now. Uh, and then the second case is a Washington state case. And the question there was, whether the juror had been rehabilitated. And so um, there's an example of the questioning by the defense trying to show that the juror um, could not be fair and impartial and then rehabilitation by the prosecution. Um, but the court ultimately found that the juror had not been rehabilitated, that there was not a sufficient basis in the record to know um, to show why the juror would set aside prior opinions of bias. And so that concludes my portion. Thank you. And uh, do we have any questions uh, for Ms. Lawson before we move on? Let's go to Judge Jones. And again, Judge Jones from the Phoenix Municipal Court. Okay, again, thank you everyone for being here. Um, I was telling Michelle when we went over uh, getting prepared for this presentation, a lot of what she had talked about, I had done one just a few weeks ago, and it covered a lot of the same things. So I didn't want to duplicate um, efforts and, and say the same thing. So I'm going to talk more about, um, go over what we see in injury trial. That's why I listed that in the PowerPoint. And a little bit just of kind of what we've seen down at Phoenix Municipal Court uh, in some of our jury trials. And just to kind of share that because I I know this is new and I, everybody knows as of January 1st, uh, this is when it's affected that we didn't have peremptory challenges and we're the first state in the nation to actually eliminate preliminary challenges. So actually other states are gonna be looking to us um, to see how we navigate this. So this is all new territory. So what we're talking about today, these are obviously, there were suggestions in the comments and things like that, but we're actually in some new territory that we haven't been before. So, you know, this point, there's there's not always going to be a right or a wrong answer. I mean, obviously, we have the rules and the laws to govern us, um, but we are in uncharted territory. But that's what happens. You know, laws change. Laws don't remain the same. So this is what happens. Uh, and so, you know, we just get prepared for it. But I know other states are very excited. I know someone did a presentation uh, recently. And they found out that we were the first to do it. And so now they're looking towards us. Uh, and I just wanted to comment a little bit uh, there were two rule changes that were proposed. Judge Swan and Judge McMurdy were the ones to eliminate preliminary uh, challenges. And in their appendix, they had listed uh, all of the Batson challenges because that was the reason the Supreme Court was looking to address um, bias concerning in, in Batson challenges. Usually that was coming from the state, uh, the prosecutors. At least that's what was listed 
um, in their examples um, in, in the rule change. The other rule change, and that was one thing that is when the previous slides there that Michelle talked about was in rule 21008. Uh, that was one uh, and a lot of other um, parties were in favor of that one. That wasn't eliminating pre uh, peremptory challenges, but to do some changes. And that was modeled after Washington State because uh, they had done some changes in how to combat Batson. And so that was the one that I think a lot of people thought was going to be adopted. Um, and then the we, we was nicknamed the Swan McMurdy petition because those are the judges that wrote the one. And that's where our, <clears throat> our changes were taken from. And that's the one that actually the Supreme Court did adopt. So I just wanted to say that, but we are, because we're the first in the nation, now we're the trailblazers, if you will. All right, next slide, please. <clears throat> and what I wanted to do, the first few slides, I just wanted to go over because as we know in felonies, everything is a jury trial, but in misdemeanors, it's only certain offenses that are jury trials. Um, so I just wanted to just highlight a few of those just as reminders. Um, I think these are usually in our list of when we're arraigning people, at least that's where I keep this. So it reminds me of what offenses are jury eligible when I'm doing uh, arraignments. So I just wanted to kind of go over, I put them in, they're either gonna look red or orange. Um, that'll show that those are jury, um, the most common jury eligible offenses. Uh, in, if you look at 13-118, anytime the state has a special allegation of sexual motivation, that is jury eligible. We had one case last year in the city of Phoenix. Uh, it was an assault case and the state did allege sexual motivation. And so that was a jury trial. It was an adult who had groped, um, he was a juvenile, but he was over the age of 15, but groped him on a city bus <clears throat> in his genital area. And so the state had made that allegation. So it's one you don't see very often, um, but that's just one to keep in mind. Um, the other ones, unlawful imprisonment, um, indecent exposure. And as I said, I highlighted that one because those are like the ones that we've seen that will typically you know, go to jury trial more, uh, more than others. Um, public sexual indecency, sexual assault of a spouse. A lot of those other class six felonies. So we typically don't see those, but again, it's just a reminder that that's something that could go be jury eligible. Um, adultery, I mean, I don't think we've seen any charges on it, but that is as well. Uh, theft, we've seen a number of cases and they haven't gone to jury trial, but obviously we have a lot of theft and you know shoplifting cases and those are jury eligible. Um, next slide, please. Uh, unlawful use of means of transportation. Uh, we don't see that very often. Those are usually probably filed as class fives or sixes. And if they're designated misdemeanors, they're probably at, at the county. So we're probably not gonna see those. Shoplifting, we're always seeing shoplifting. Uh, I think the most common we've seen is Walmart. That seems to be where everybody is uh, stealing in Phoenix. Um, and that's, I haven't seen any jury trials goes. I had three that were set and none of them went to jury trial, but we have been getting some that have been set for trial. Um, the other is failure to return rental property, impersonating a public servant, resisting arrest, <clears throat> keeping or residing a house of prostitution and prostitution. And like I said, I highlighted the ones in red that are the most common that we see. Next slide, please. Again, 13-3613, um, contributing to the delinquency of a minor. This is really only jury eligible if the state is alleging sexual motivation, again, pursuant to 13-118. 
So you may see a few of those. We haven't seen very many. Most of our contributing to the delinquencies are to the bench because they're usually involving alcohol or some other means that it's contributing to the delinquency. They haven't been sexual motivation, but it's just something to still keep in mind. They're out there. 13-3619, uh, child neglect. 28-672, um, uh, this is accidents causing death. As you know, accidents causing injury, that is still to the bench. It's causing serious physical injury. That is a bench trial. Uh, but about five years ago, I think it was State v. Nike was a case that came out of the Phoenix Municipal Court. Um, accidents causing death is jury eligible. So those are the ones, typical facts uh, that we see is like it's a pedestrian that's in the crosswalk, the driver didn't yield, runs over, kills the pedestrian. It's something that's not filed as a felony. Um, usually the county attorney's office has declined it because there's no impairment or speeding or something else that would be a manslaughter or a negligent homicide charge. And those are the, the cases that we'll see then at the city. Uh, and the accident causing death, there are also, there's nine different areas within the code that it falls under. The most common one we see is it's the failure to yield um, to a pedestrian, but that also is jury eligible. We've had quite a few cases that are pending in our court and so far none of them have gone to trial yet. Uh, and also I know a lot of times this is post COVID, so we're all still, I think, gearing up. Uh, we're clearing out backlogs and there's still a lot of cases that we're getting through when we were shut down from COVID. I know we, we're not doing the normal jury trials that that we did before, um, but you know, we're, we're getting there. 28-693, uh, reckless driving and aggressive driving. And of course, the most common jury trials that we see are DUIs. That, that's probably like 95% of our jury trials that we see. Uh, it's DUI A1, A2, A3, impaired to the slightest degree. A BAC is over a 0.08 uh, or no, A3, illegal drug. And then of course, extreme DUI when it's um, between a 0.15, uh, over a 0.15 and under 0.20, and then a super extreme when it's over a 0.20. So that's primarily all of our jury trials that we have, that's usually the, the offenses that we see going. Next slide, please. Okay, and Michelle kind of talked about this and I had just included this again um, in, my, in my presentation because I just went to go over, I included the challenge to, uh, to the panel. That's very seldom do you see, I mean, I think occasionally I've seen an attorney do that. I don't, I don't think I've ever seen that in city court. I've seen a couple of times over in superior court, but um, that's very rare where they challenge the entire panel. That's, but that can be done, but that's rare. Uh, and then it's just the challenge for cause. I was just putting that in there again, and Michelle had already gone over that. I think I was kind of a duplicate, but I just left that in there. Um, again, it's just, it's reasonable ground. Next slide, please. And that's the standard. It says the court must excuse a prospective juror if there is a reasonable ground to believe that the juror or jurors cannot render a fair and impartial verdict. And again, Michelle basically, um, she touched, basically discussed that. And I just wanted to just kind of highlight that as what does that look like? And as far as the attorneys uh, being involved, and that's gonna be, I think I mentioned that there on my next slide. Uh, but you know, in all of our 
bench books, it has in there the questions that we generally ask for Vardyar. I mean, it has our standard questions that we go through, and then we go through our specific questions for the offenses. Um, typically, the way I've uh, done my trials, and I think uh, I think all of us do that. You ask the attorneys, do they have any particular Vardyar that you want them, to, you know, want us to ask, uh, and then we will ask it. But I think now with the rule change. Uh, I will still ask those questions, but then when we do individual voir dire, um, to then that's where you do allow the attorneys to participate, or at least to ask some of those follow-up questions. And the reason being, I mean, before I know we don't we don't want to have the trial belabored, but um, before when attorneys could make strikes, that's where attorneys felt like they had really some say. And also, and this is some of the um, complaints or you know, comments, I guess I should say, I've heard from some of the attorneys with not being able to do strikes anymore. They felt that was the time that they could talk with their clients and really go over, what do you think about, you know, juror number seven? Well, you know, juror number 10, if you would like their comments and could kind of have an active role, if you will, in jury selection. So now that it's for cause, they feel like they don't have a voice anymore. That's the concern is that they won't get to participate and be able to be active in selecting the jury if we have the judges are doing everything and asking all of the questions. So it is important that we do allow them um, because also that's the standard. They have to make a showing for cause. So we do have to allow that. And you know, like I said, you have to be mindful of it. And I think that's what some of the scenarios that we have later on are actually going to go into. Now, what we've noticed, and I've asked some of my colleagues since January, because we still, like I said, we're getting back into uh, coming back from COVID. Um, I don't know what other courts have been doing, but we still do not use all of our courtrooms for jury trials. We only have four courtrooms that we use because we had done that during COVID. They are spaced out. The jury box is spaced out further. Um, there's additional plexiglass and um, safety precautions that we took. So we only use four out of the courtrooms out of the, I believe, 16 that we have. We do not do our jury trials in our own courtrooms. We go to one of the four uh, when we actually do our jury trials. And so with that, it used to be, obviously, uh, we would have, you know, five or six jury trials a day. Now we basically have one, maybe we're getting up to maybe we get two during the day or even two and say over the next three days. So we're doing a significant smaller number of jury trials. We're still trying to get back, but obviously we're not doing our trials the way we did that before. And so I think that has, uh, you know, that's affected obviously the normal course of business. Um, but so obviously the concern came without strikes, will that make trials either longer or shorter? Um, so far, what we've noticed this year, and we still um, have a fair number of trials going, the time frame has not, you know, increased. Um, attorneys are able to ask questions, and they're able to do that, and it's not adding more time. Because I know that was a lot of the concern. People say, well, what happens uh, if attorneys, you know, take a long time? It doesn't mean you you let them have carte blanche. Uh, you let people ask questions to make their case of whether or not there's a juror that should be struck for cause, but it doesn't mean you just get to delve into every question or they wanna just keep going you know, on and on. I mean, you can limit it. So you can still do that. And I think that's some of the, 
the concern. And it's also is to do a balance on that. But the other thing is like they said, we need to make a good record. Um, next slide, please. Okay, we'll go back to the previous slide because that, that is the last one. Um, so we'll go back to the previous one while I was talking about um, as far as doing follow-up questions. I'm sorry, no, the next one, I'm sorry, go forward. Oh, no, forward, it's the next to the last one where it says oh, the attorneys are asking questions. I wanna go back to that one and to focus on that. All right, and does anyone have any questions or comments? I know we're going to probably do it's a lot easier to go through some of these with some of the scenarios because it kind of puts it into into play has anyone had any jury trials go since january 1st my my court has but i i i haven't been hearing them myself um but we have done some. I did have a question, and, and I know I bring this up every single time. Uh, maybe I'll get a, a different perspective today. Um, over what is your opinion on what questions should be asked of the panel as a whole, as opposed to um, individual voir dire, bringing each juror individually uh, and, and asking them questions without the panel being present. Well, what I always do is read the general question, you know, like say, has any of you or family members been the victim of a crime? I mean, you know, kind of general. And you look for, you know, they raise their card. So you write down, you know, the general, okay, juror number six, seven, 10, 12. Is there anything about that experience that would cause you to favor, you know, one party or another? And you kind of wait and then bring them in or you ask them say if anyone here been a defendant or been charged you or a family member been charged with a crime such as this today say it's a dui and usually we get quite a few hands i write down the numbers but then i'm going to bring those back individually because you don't know what people are going to say and you don't if they go into something i mean the it doesn't happen very very often but occasionally somebody will say something next you know you they've tainted the panel you know, if they, if I, for example, I had a trial, my last trial that I had, um, I asked someone if they had a family member had been arrested or charged and juror, she raised her hand and she says, yeah, she felt the prosecutor had treated and she mentioned the prosecutor's name. And it just so happened, I, I recognized the name of the prosecutor. And I was like, well, she's a deputy county attorney the last time I saw her, unless she's, you know, gone to the city of Phoenix. And so she was really unhappy about some things that that happened in the trial so i was like okay this is someone i don't i don't want her to talk in front of the whole panel because i'm not sure where she's going and she didn't sound like she sounded very unhappy and she sounded like she had a lot of negativity uh towards press because then i asked her i said well do you have it it, it is, i understand it sound like there's a this particular prosecutor and i introduced i said this person is at the city of phoenix do you have is uh i forgot i didn't say do you have an issue but i basically i asked this is the city of Phoenix. Can you separate that? That was quick. Can you separate out that case from this case today? And she said she'd think about it or something. She gave some answer that was not sounding very promising. So I was like, okay, we need to talk to you individually. And then before we brought her in, I asked the city prosecutor, I said, you know, I know who she's talking about. She's a deputy county attorney. And I said, is she currently at the city of Phoenix? I'm just, cause I know we've had several 
county prosecutors have come over to the city now. And he says, no. I said, all right, I said, it sounds like she might have an issue uh, with prosecutors. And sure enough, she did. Her issue was she had, uh, she was upset with prosecutors in general and felt they were unfair and targeted. So that's not something I wanted, would have wanted to ask in front of the whole panel. Uh, that's something obviously we want to talk about individually. So then we actually, you know, we struck her for cause. I mean, I understand that there's things that you want to ask individually, and, and I guess that's a good example of a case that you would. I'm just always concerned at the fact that we try to keep all the other jurors separate and, you know, make sure we're not tainting the jury. And then they go into the jury room and who knows what they're saying. And I wonder, isn't it, you know, I don't know. I, I just kind of have the idea that something should be flushed in in public, but I know that I'm in the minority in this. So I was just, just asking. I, I always like to ask them individually. Uh, I think the attorneys prefer that just so that way. And also then sometimes the jurors, they feel freer to talk. I mean, there are certainly, they may not want to say in front of the rest of the panel, but they'll say it on, you know, one-on-one -on -one. if there's only five people you know, they're in the courtroom, they're okay with the attorneys and the judge, but they don't want to say that in front of 20 people, you know, they feel uncomfortable. So I don't have, a, anytime they raise their cards, we pretty much just bring them in individually. If they raise their card to anything, we just make a note of what question it was, and then we call them back in. And then I have a list, I say, all right, um, you know, juror number five, they raised their cards on these. And then we ask those questions and then, you know, see if the, what follow-up questions the attorneys have. Or if there's something additional that just came up that the attorneys, when I'll, you know, I turn it over to the attorneys to say, okay, what, um, you know, Mr. Prosecutor, Ms. Ms. Defense Attorney, you know, uh, for follow-up. So that way they can participate and ask their questions. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big proponent of the individual questioning. Um, and, and I pretty much let the attorneys loose at that point because they can't prejudice any other juror um, and, and, and and I agree that I think the the prospective juror feels more free to to answer when they're not saying that in front of 25 other people uh, so I, yeah I'm a proponent of that Paul you would turn your microphone on did you have something to share and this is Paul Julian the uh, statewide uh, judicial education officer well boy we're fortunate to have the quality presenters. Uh, thanks, Charlie, for putting this together, and uh, Michelle and Frankie, too. I was curious, uh, um, you know, uh, we've talked about how Arizona is a trailblazer, I think was the word, um, and and how's that going? I mean, I, I remember, you know, last fall when, when this first started, I think the Chief Justice came to the uh, GOHS conference, and uh, you know, they realized that that we were going to be out there on the front edge. Is that is that helping us? Uh, because you know, there's a lot of options and it's unprecedented. Or uh, do you think it would be easier if there were, you know, half the country was already doing this and we were just stepping in the same places they've been? I I think people are still watching because right now we we don't have any numbers on like how how trials are going. Uh, you know, because it just, like say, took place in January. So I don't think we saw our first jury trials until probably mid-February before we started seeing, you know, jury trials with, with the new rule. So I think a lot of it is really going to take some time just, just to kind of see, you know, what cases go up on appeal. 
Um, and then, you know, what issues are raised at that level? Because it, it seems kind of early, I, I guess, and, and no pun intended, but, you know, I guess the jury's still out um, to kind of <laughs> to go with that. So I, I know there are a lot um, at the judicial, not the judicial conference, the state bar convention. There are several presentations this year concerning the new rule. Uh, there actually is one panel on Wednesday. Uh, I'm actually on that with Justice Bean, but uh, we got him on this on transformational leadership. He actually is going to talk a little bit of how the Supreme Court came to that decision. I uh, he said he's not going to out anybody as far as the votes, but give a little uh, sneak behind the curtain of how the Supreme Court came to vote to eliminate uh, peremptory challenges. So I, I have a feeling that'll be a lot of a lot of people will be tuning in or you know wanting to see that. I know I'm I can't wait to to hear that myself. Uh, but he's actually going to be on a panel. There's a panel discussing other things, but that's what his portion is going to be discussing. So mm -hmm. I, I think there's a lot going on. Like like Michelle had said when HB um, 2413, it was interesting because the rule took place in January and already there was a House bill in January to try to get the peremptory challenges back. Now, I think it was just going for the criminal uh, and it was sponsored by uh, the Mojave County Attorney's Office and some of the Mojave and some of the smaller jurisdictions where the sponsors are behind the bill. Um, but the bill did fail, but we did hear that there may be, it may be come back again. I mean, then try to get some, some other traction. I mean, the bill was only to bring it back in criminal, which I was I was surprised that there wasn't if they're going to try to do that um, to get civil since the peremptory challenges, you know, was eliminated in both, you know, cases. But I don't know, maybe they didn't get any any traction um, civil because I know civil was the one that last year when all the debate was going on, they were very much against it. If you read the comments, that's where a lot of the um, uh, those that were against uh, was coming from the civil bar. Uh, when I know when we were looking at the comment section and a lot of civil defense firms were the ones that were writing against it. So I guess we'll see next year if that comes back up uh, in the legislature. I don't, I don't think it's gone. I think they just, they didn't get it. Um, but, you know, it was kind of interesting. It was kind of like, well, the rule just changed. So unless you have some data to say that it's not working, it's kind of hard to say, no, let's go back to the way it was. So, so Paul, can I answer your question? I think we're just going to have to see what happens uh, as we go throughout the year, you know, kind of see how trials go without having, um, you know, strikes anymore and just see where we go. And, um, you know, like I said, it's, I guess we'll see what ends up going up on appeal. Well, I'm glad you're out there in front leading all of us. Thanks. So, uh, Michelle, oh, go ahead. Michelle, did you uh, add anything from the Superior Court side? You know, I work primarily with the judges um, on capital cases, and um, we had one recently, but um, it, it didn't seem like there was a big change in how the lawyers uh, were requesting voir dire or um, making their challenges for cause. And the little bit of conversation I've had with other judges, um, it seems that um, the judges have not seen a big change as of yet. So I don't really have anything to add. Oh, I was just going to add just one more thing I was going to say. When you're uh, making a record, it's also important that 
jurors um, behaviors and things because uh, I think, you know, the record's just going to print out that the jury says, I can be fair and impartial. But, you know, when they're doing things that people can't, this record doesn't take, we can see, for example, you ask a juror a question and they're sitting there like this with their arms folded or they're sighing or they're rolling their eyes, you know, those physical notions. And you're like, okay, clearly this person is not happy. They don't want, you, you can make those observations. That's something that doesn't make it into the record. When it goes up on appeal, they'll just say, well, the juror said they could be fair and impartial. <laughs> but, you know, you saw their demeanor. You saw what they were like sitting there in the jury box. You know, every time a question is asked that, you know, maybe they frowned or you noticed their face or they're making comments under their breath or saying something. So it's okay when you're, you know, if there's a strike for a cause, it's good to put that on there, you know, and I noticed in the juror's demeanor they did X, they did Y. They were very kind, they didn't want to listen. They turned their head every time an attorney asked a question and turned away from them. And those are things the record's not going to capture. So go ahead and put that on there. So that way, when something does go up on appeal, it's like, yeah, no, they actually, there is a reason. Because a transcript just prints it out. But we see, you know, their demeanor, we're seeing them physically. And that's why, you know, the appellate courts always say they defer to the trial courts. They know what we observed and they're not going to disturb it on appeal, you know, absent abuse of discretion. They're going to give us that and say, well, they were there. They saw it. They heard it. They saw what was going on. We're going to defer to the trial judge. Well, and, and that's a, a great point. Um, is, and that reminds us judges to look because uh, some of us might be so furiously writing notes that we do forget to look up and look at the person and to check out their demeanor. Uh, and uh, so that that's a, a really um, great point. All right, so anything else, anything else for our two presenters thus far? I had a question, and this might be a bit of an unfair question, but obviously the prosecution can't appeal an acquittal so there's very little case law that says the state didn't get a fair trial because um, there, there's a lot of case law that, that says that why the defendant didn't get a fair trial. Um, and I was wondering if if any of the people that, that do this a lot more frequently than I do have sort of a, wow, that's a, a slam dunk challenge for cause. We don't need to go any further kind of example. Allegedly in a a federal court, and I, I, I didn't pay attention to the, the word dire process. I don't, it's according to news reports, but in in a federal court trial um, that recently concluded, um, a jury member was allowed to stay on the jury, even though the jury member's child was on the same sports team with the defendant's child. And I just, I find that remarkable. Uh, if, if that occurred, and I, I would assume that that would be a, a slam dunk challenge for cause, but for whatever reason, it, it, it wasn't. And I, I don't know if uh, either the, the any of the panelists have, you know, good examples of an obvious challenge for cause. But, uh, most people are going to say, well, yeah, I can be fair, even though I'm a I'm a gunshot wound victim, and this is a, a case where someone shot a convenience store um, clerk. I, I was just wondering if there was any, any, you have really good examples from your past of that's an obvious challenge for cause. We don't need to bring, bring the person back for individual for dire. 
And I'm from Oklahoma, so I say we're dire. I apologize. <laughs> well, one of the last trials that I did, um, when I asked the question, can you follow the law? Um, she said she couldn't. So, I mean, that's, you don't hear that very often, but I was like, okay, well, you're gone. Um, but, but one example that I thought was interesting, th this is when um, I myself was on, on a jury. Uh, I was in the panel, rather, wasn't on the jury. Um, this was a few years ago when I was still at the county attorney's office. And when they called us in, and, and of course, I recognized pretty much everybody there, but I knew the prosecutor because we work in the same office. Now, I, we didn't work in the same bureau, but I, I've known her for years, you know. So when they, you know, the judge asked, do you know anybody? And I, you know, raised my, my number and he said, he started to laugh. He says, well, I suppose you should say how you, how you know, or who you know. And I says, well, I know, you know, Ms. So-and-so, we're actually prosecutors in the same office. And he said, oh, okay, thank you. And he says, um, do you know, do you know anything about this case? And, you know, I looked at the defendant and I was like, no, I don't think so. I says, well, I, he doesn't look familiar to me. However, someone should probably check a minute entry and just make sure I haven't made an appearance on it. <laughs> but I was like, no, he doesn't look familiar. But what was interesting, what was taking all day, I figured, okay, I just said we work in the same office. Like I, I should be, you know, stricken. And later on, I didn't, I didn't get let go until like four o'clock, you know, in the afternoon. And so later when I was talking to my colleague, I said, okay, so what took so long? He, he said, well, he was thinking there was no problem of leaving you on the jury. And I actually had to argue. And I said, well, it's a given. I mean, no one's going to let a prosecutor, we work in the same office. I mean, that just that's kind of like, that'd be the same case with the police officer. I mean, I would give that analogy. I'd be like that, no, you can't have this, the prosecutor on the panel. We work in the same office. I mean, yeah, I don't know the case, but come on. That's, that to me, that was a given. Um, the judge, he, he didn't think so, but um, but later she argued and he said, oh, okay, well, I guess we have other jurors. And But I, I just thought that was kind of surprising because I thought that was a given. Because I've been on panels before, or I've had prosecutors or even defense attorneys on my panels. As an attorney, the judge would just strike them automatically. They'd be like, okay, well, we'll just go ahead and do that without any without any argument. So that that's kind of a personal experience that I had, but it's kind of the opposite. But she had to actually, like I said, had to argue for it. All right, uh, Ms. Lawson, did you have uh, anything further? Well, I was thinking about the federal court example um, that you gave, and I, I think what's important there is that facts so often are, are um, the facts about the jurors' views and experience are important. Like with Frankie being on the um, panel where it's a coworker, who is the prosecutor in the case, that, that's kind of a direct challenge. She's in the same office and having to evaluate her colleague. But when it's a child on a sports team, well, that's not necessarily an issue in the trial. And so what the jurors' views, the prospective jurors' views are is important. And so I guess what I'm saying is I don't know that there are a lot of slam dunk challenges for cause unless the juror says something like, you know, my brother's a police officer and um, I think my brother is 
honest and I'm always going to think police officers um, are honest. And if there is a dispute between a police officer and another witness, I'm always going to believe the police officer. So unless the juror gives you a basis to believe that they can't change their views and listen to the evidence in the court, um, it's a challenge for cause and dependent on yeah. the facts. I'm glad you said that uh, because I certainly think that was the case uh, a few years ago. It certainly was the case when I started doing jury trials. Uh, but the last few uh, jury trials I've done, it's been the opposite, where the person will blurt out, they all lie. Uh, and uh, and, that, and that's pretty stunning. That That's pretty shocking that, that uh, the tide has turned on that and, and the presumption that someone is going to favor the testimony of a police officer. I don't know that that's true any longer. Judge Huberman, you've had your microphone on. Oh, yeah, I was just going to say there was a judge in Superior Court, and I don't remember who it was, but he, he always used to ask the jurors, if you went back to work tomorrow, would you get grief from your colleague or would you have be embarrassed to tell your colleague that you voted? not guilty or that you voted guilty um so i always thought that that i mean i don't know if that's necessarily the question but in the case that frankie explained i think i think that would be a good mindset you know that you're if, if you're putting the juror in a situation to either have to vote against her colleague or try to explain you know or create a situation where they might feel uncomfortable voting against their colleague, then that person should not be on the jury. All right, well, let's uh, go into the uh, discussion scenarios. Uh, and uh, and actually, uh, we do have some, most of us are from Maricopa, but we do have a few JPs from smaller, much smaller jurisdictions where you're more likely to have people who know each other, who are on the same sports teams, who uh, go to the same church, who shop at the same supermarket. Um, so please chime in. Uh, we also have with us today, uh, Professor Art Hinshaw, who is a, a nationally famous mediator. Uh, and, and I really wanted him here today because he used to be on the Judicial Conduct Commission. Uh, so if we have any ethical uh, issues today, uh, Art, please chime in. Uh, we, we have Paul Julian today, and we do have a lot of of uh, judges and attorneys who've done jury trials on both sides. So please, this is gonna work better the more you participate. And, and so please participate. What I have on the screen here is um, on the first page, I did repeat uh, and, and update the applicable rules. Um, so you can print this off and the next time you do a jury trial, you, you've got this information in front of you. Uh, and when I updated this, I, I was just kind of stunned that the comments to Rule 18.4 that were deleted, um, and Michelle did mention that in her PowerPoint. Well, this is this is a couple, you know, a couple of the things that, that were deleted that I thought were kind of important. The other thing I wanted to point out um, is there's a bit of a discrepancy here. Rule 18.4b says the court on motion or on its own must excuse a prospective juror or jurors from service in the case if there's a reasonable ground to believe, but then on 18.5H, challenges for cause must be on the record and uh, uh, the party challenging a juror for cause has the burden to establish by a preponderance of the evidence that the juror cannot render a fear and impartial verdict. So. 
how do we resolve this apparent discrepancy? You know, I'm not sure that I, I'm not sure that I completely agree that there's a discrepancy. The, if a lawyer raises a challenge for cause, they have a burden to establish the basis for a cause by preponderance of the evidence. And then 18.4 kind of mirrors that because it, it also says the court on its own motion, um, if there's a reasonable ground to believe, a reasonable well, ground is not all that dissimilar from probable cause. Um, it, but it says the court on motion or on its own. So here it's a motion and down here it's a motion. So I, I do think there's a discrepancy. And what's interesting is these rules haven't changed, so they've been around for a while. So that's that's just something to think about, um, which standard. The other one that I thought was really important is the change that we made in 2022, where we no longer are to rehabilitate. And um, that's, that's a real change for those of us who were trained to rehabilitate jurors, uh, especially when not very many show up and you do want to try to have a jury trial that day. Um, we, were, we were trained to rehabilitate and we are discouraged now from rehabilitating. So that's going to throw that back on the attorneys. Um, any thoughts or comments on that? I mean, I, to me, that, that's the big change here. Why we're here today is our roles have changed and, and we're not to rehabilitate. Well, Charles, and I think that's one thing, since the attorneys can't make a, you know, just a general strike, that's a way to allow them to be a part of the jury selection. You know, if they're not asking, you know, the majority of the questions, that's a way for, you know, for them to actually participate. Because it used to be they could just say, you know, after we got through Vardar, I knew that I, I remember when I was as an attorney and I realized, okay, that jury wasn't struck for cause. And I was like, well, I'm not worried about it. That's going to be my second strike. And I already knew, because you already know who you're going to, you know, strike as a juror. So it, it, now with that, I think now that allows the attorneys then to, you know, to, to let them at least say, okay, I, they can participate and have some say in it. Like I said, that was some of the comments that I had heard uh, from attorneys and, you know, earlier in the year uh, when the strikes were, were taken away, there was like, well, they feel like they, you know, lost a, an important part of the process. All right, any other thoughts? All right, let's. I've got a thought into... too. Okay. This is Rob Jarvis. I, and both being on, uh, on the attorney side and the judge side, uh, I always thought it very, I didn't think it was proper in rehab, trying to rehabilitate a potential juror with conclusory or leading questions anyway. Uh, it's That's different than asking open-ended questions, trying to find out if this person can actually be fair and impartial. Um, I would agree that it is incumbent upon the attorneys now uh, I think they have to be more prepared to be uh, to question the potential jurors uh, for to determine if they are um, fair and impartial. Uh, but I I think that as a judge, I think it's still okay to ask the open-ending, open-ended questions to see if this person could actually be fair and impartial. 
but not lead the path down to saying you can be fair and impartial, can't you? And that that's what's improper. At least that's my take on it. Okay. All right. So let's go into uh, the first question, and and this is, you know, we we've, we've done the general four deer, and now you're bringing back tours individually. Um, so the first one is, is there anything about the anticipated length or daily schedule of the trial that presents a problem, whether it be personal, business, or health, that is significant enough that you feel the need to ask to be excused from service on this jury? And you don't want anyone to volunteer that they have chronic diarrhea in front of the entire panel. Uh, so, you know, that this is why you, you might want to bring that person back and, and have them do that individually. Um, so juror number one says they have a college exam in three days, so they're not sure that they can concentrate. How are we going to handle this? How, how do we let the attorneys handle this? How, do, how are we going to handle it? And what we haven't read is, you know, how do you balance a weak excuse with the danger of putting someone on the panel who really doesn't want to be there? All right, Judge Jones. Okay. And I'm just gonna ask, are you saying in these, this is all an individual voir dire at this time? Like we brought them all back? Or is this in front yeah. of the whole panel? Okay, so they're individual. <clears throat> Um, well, the college student, I would, I would ask, well, when is the, well, if it's a DUI, <clears throat> it's a, it's in two days. I said, well, this is anticipated to be a two-day trial. Um, and then when it, what type, I guess, what type of ex exam do you have? Um, what type of studying? And I guess I'd probably turn it over to the attorneys and see if they had any additional questions. I mean, I, I would start, I would ask them about their exam and, you know, and if they keep going, I guess, to see if the juror needs time to study versus they just have the exam, you know, they've been studying for it, are they prepared for it <clears throat> versus, you know, they're depending on what it is. I mean, I guess it's like organic chemistry or something and they're trying to get into med school <clears throat> and this is going to, you know, make or break them or something of that nature. I mean, I, I think too. Well, I was going to say that I think to your point that that the, how do you balance the weak excuse? What are we trying to what are we trying to find out here? I mean, are we trying to find out if it's a legitimate excuse or are we trying to find out if, um, you know, are we going to try to make them work around our trial schedule? And, you know, get them to admit that, well, OK, that I could stay up later at night and study. I mean, I, I I just I just think what is it that we're trying to um, trying to find? I I don't know what it's like in the city of Phoenix, um, and you know I know in Superior Court they usually have sufficient jurors that a lack of jurors is not the problem, um, and so you know maybe not keeping someone on who doesn't want to be there or that you're going to make mad by keeping them on, you know, might not be worth it, but you know, I'll get 12 jurors show up 
you know, for a panel in my court. And sometimes it's like, if I start, you know, giving away excuses like lollipops, I may not end up being able to sit a jury. So, I mean, but for me, it's like, what is it that I'm, you know, what, what am I trying to weed out here? I, I know we usually bring up a panel has, I believe, I think they summon 35 to 40. And like, <clears throat> and like I said, we're still doing <clears throat> one, one trial a day versus five trials a day. So we, we haven't had a problem where we've like, you know, not going to make or get ready to excuse a whole lot of jurors and not get a panel. So, and we bring them up now in groups of 20 because now we're not doing the COVID restrictions anymore. So we were doing groups of 10. So that would take jury selection a little bit longer because we do 10 and then see where we were um, to bring up the next group of 10. But now we're doing 20. So, and then if we need to go to a, you know, a second panel, we can, but normally we're gonna, now we're able to get it within 20. We don't have to go to a third. We usually can get seven people. Um, but I was gonna make a comment on, as far as juror number five, the trying to pay off bills right now and not missing work. Um, one of my colleagues just a couple of weeks ago when they were doing jury selection, she almost didn't think she was gonna get um, a jury pick because everyone had that same issue. I mean, a lot of people there are talking about how they've been laid off and with COVID, they're still not back to work full time. And this is this is a reality. I mean, we still have to realize a lot of people still are not working full time or they're working two part time jobs. Um, so that really was an issue. But a couple of weeks ago, she almost didn't get a panel pick because every juror just about was having financial problems where they weren't going to get paid. And it was basically, you know, excusing people. And that actually was that's the first time we've seen where it was kind of she was like oh my gosh i think i was gonna have i had to call up a third panel and we usually don't have to do that um to try to to get seven people so um i i, mean, I guess it's like you're saying what what are we looking for but that actually is one that we i think we'll see a lot i think that may come up more i mean i've always excused jurors if they're not they're not getting paid um you know, to be there in trial, I don't want somebody to miss work and worrying about then how they're going to make, you know, missing that one day could really set them back. And particularly now we know with, with COVID and the way things have been going, you know, with people's finances, that really is a, a major issue. And I, I think that actually is going to, we're going to see more of that. And I don't think that's going to, that particular reason is going to get better. I mean, I'm impressed that they yeah. even showed up. I think the reason we get few jurors is because the ones who don't get paid don't even show up on the day that they're summoned. So, but I, I agree that 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 one I wouldn't question either. I don't know, Kyle. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I I mean, I'm I'm just looking for some help here. Well, I on on the question that Charlie's asking about is. It really depends on how many jurors you have in the pool as to how you respond to some of those questions. If I have enough people and the and the uh, group where there gave me enough to go on, I may let some of them go for some of those. But if I don't have a big enough pool, I'm going to wait till I get through all the individuals before I really decide. Uh, it's it, it's all dependent upon who you get to show up. So that brings me to a question from Michelle is 
does the challenge for cause change based on what kind of panel we have? If we have enough jurors or we don't have enough jurors, I mean, should those be considerations? I don't know that the consideration of whether there is enough jurors um, goes to whether the individual juror can render a verdict based on the evidence in court and can be fair and impartial. Um, so like for the student who has an exam in three days, if she says, I'm going to spend all my time in trial thinking about my exam and I'm not going to pay attention to the evidence, um, that might be a problem, or the juror who's blind, if there are exhibits and the person, you know, has to be able to see the exhibits. So I think that the question has goes back to, is there a basis to believe this juror cannot be fair and impartial? And the, the reason I put the blind person there is I, I've never really gotten a good answer for this because to me, it, it, it seems like a violation of the ADA to strike someone because they're blind. But then what is the alternative if, if you know, we have body cam footage? Do you have a clerk say, you know, read the or describe the body cam footage to the juror? Well, well, the, the video shows the person's clearly drunk as they get out of the car. You know, I mean, how do you resolve the putting a blind person on the jury. Luckily, that blind person also had back pain and trouble sitting. So I was able, everyone agreed to excuse the juror for that reason. Um, so let's uh, move on. And uh, question number two, have you or your family member or any close friends ever been arrested, charged with, or convicted of a DUI? And so this juror says their friend's charge is still pending. I was in the car behind Ray when he got pulled over. We were coming back from the lake. Ray wasn't doing anything. He called me on his cell phone and said he was being pulled over and then they gave him a DUI. And then I, uh, there are some follow-up questions here. Does, does anyone have any uh, thoughts about this one? Thoughts or comments? This really will work better with, with lots of participation. I would have a problem with that juror. I would, I would need to get more responses from them, but just what you have written down, I would, I would be concerned. Okay. So you, you like these follow-up questions, you agree that, that you need to do that, or do we let the attorneys do that, or who's gonna do I, it? I would let the attorneys do it. Okay, you, you. Okay, we've got someone on the phone whose microphone, or is that Darcy? Someone's microphone. That was me. Can you hear me or no? Okay, now we can. Okay, I'm sorry. I would let the attorneys ask those questions too. Okay. All right, Judge Jones. Yeah, I was going to say I would let the attorneys follow up with that. And then if, if something still would need to be flushed out, 
then I, you know, might do some thought, like Michelle was saying, like it's for clarification is something, but then just to do a thought, but I'd let the attorneys do it. All right, so um, let's, does anyone else have any comments or thoughts on number two? Uh, yeah. So, okay, Judge Reagan. Yeah. Yes, uh, the fact that he said that he was behind him and, and he wasn't doing anything, that really raises my antenna as far as him uh, being a, um, uh, a good juror. He are, I mean, he already he already's made up in his mind that the, that the cop is wrong and, and his friend wasn't doing anything. Yeah, so that that is something that the prosecutor certainly would need to follow up on. Yes. Okay, good. So and, then my and, question. Uh, well, my question is then we as judges, if we don't hear anything specific that says I can't be fair and impartial we just hand it over, right? We don't have to act unless they say something that for us triggers that they can't be fair and impartial. You know, that's an, that's an interesting question. I mean, it's not going to get, uh, you could look at it from the perspective of it's not gonna get appealed unless the lawyer makes a for cause challenge. If the lawyer doesn't raise a challenge, then I can't think of a basis that a court would review it on their own, right? Right. Yeah, I mean, do, you know, do, do the parties pass this jury? Most strikes. And, yeah. All right, Judge Weed. Well, you know, we they changed it now where we're not supposed to um, try to rehabilitate them. Open, you know, ask the open questions, not the closed questions. But I don't think that we want to be forcing people or giving a, you know, forcing a for cause either. I mean, you have to look at how the person's sitting. You have to look at their answers. If there needs to be follow-up questions, either you or the attorneys are going to ask them that. But I don't think you have to if you if you don't feel it's necessary. I don't know if that makes sense to everybody. Like, but I don't think we have to force that them to get them to say they have something. That's just me. I don't think I'm saying that clearly. Okay. Good. Anyone else? All right, let's move in. Uh, Denise Holiday said, oh, Darcy, thank you. Oops, sorry. The, uh, and Denise Holiday says the questions are appropriate, but they should be asked by the attorneys. Okay, uh, are you hearing an echo to my voice? Or now that we've muted Dar Darcy, is, are we okay? All right, so question number three, have you, any member of your family or close friend ever been involved in a traffic accident in which alcohol was allegedly involved? And let's look at juror number four. So my nephew was an alcoholic who killed himself by driving into a tree 12 years ago, but they weren't close and I understand my duty as a citizen and I'm 100% sure that I can be fair and impartial in this case. Does this raise capitals on anyone? Raise hairs? Oh, I'm, I'm sure I can be, you know, he killed himself by driving into a tree, but he was an idiot anyway. So 
I, I can be fair and impartial. So that makes me think of a point that I saw in some cases that, you know, just because a juror says they cannot be fair and impartial, that they can be fair and impartial does not in and of itself mean that there is or isn't a challenge for cause. Although, of course, that's very important. The question is, is there anything else in the content of what they've said or how they've said it um, that demonstrates a challenge for cause? So like in this example, I don't think there is because it was a long time ago, they weren't that close and the juror gives some additional explanation in addition to saying I'm 100% sure I can be fair and impartial. Well, and I'm, and I'm glad you added the, is there something else? Because on, on the next page, we're gonna add something else, but let's just go on this. Judge, uh, Judge Reagan, you turned on your mic. Uh, yeah, I would be concerned with at this point, how close were they? What, did this have a profound impact on the juror or was it just something, uh, we all knew it was gonna happen sooner or later, glad, it, glad he got it done when he did. That's all. All right, so now we're gonna add something to number four. Juror number four brought a MAGA hat and the defendant is a person of color who needs an interpreter. Does this change anything? But I, I can be 100%. I'm trying. I'm, well, right. I mean, I think in the end, um, I think as much as we want to, I don't know that it's our place to say that just because you're wearing a MAGA hat, I judge Huberman know that you can't be fair and impartial because how would you be wearing that hat? But I, I would think it's something. Um, that the attorneys, you know, should probably have leeway to bring up as much information as they can on, on that particular situation. Okay, so uh, we excuse the juror and the defense attorney says, Judge Huberman, I move to strike because he's wearing a MAGA hat and my client is of color and needs an interpreter. But that doesn't, but then the court has to say on the record what the basis for the belief is that the juror is biased. And I don't know that a court is going to accept that the fact. Wearing, yeah, yeah, I have that. Right. Judge Reagan? Uh, what? What is the bearing of a mega hat? Does it automatically assume certain things that the wearer of the hat is a racist, uh, things like that? I, I don't know that that's ever been defined in society generally that a hat like that uh, conveys anything. Well, and that's why then we're gonna flip the script and juror four is wearing a, a Black Lives Matter shirt. The defendant is of color and the prosecutor is now going after the juror heart. How far do you let the prosecutor go? 
I let him go for a bit, see how, see how, uh, you know, how it goes. Do, do we think that, bad man, but I, w- I wouldn't, some, I wouldn't let him bludgeon the person. If do we believe that if someone shows up for jury duty wearing a Black Lives Matter shirt or wearing a MAGA hat, is wearing that to make a statement? And if so, then what is the statement? Well, I, I don't know what statement a mega hat means other than past support for a presidential candidate or a president, but a, a, a BLM is, is, is a little more forward pushing than a mega hat as far as I'm concerned. I mean, I, I think to Charles's point, the fact that you show up in court with a certain, you, you show up for jury duty in a certain attire. And you know what, that could be people who dress up for jury duty, you know, that they, they, they put on a shirt and tie, or people who show up in shorts and flip flops. I mean, I think all of it is projecting an image. Um, I, I, and, and, and I would say that in the, in, in the idea that you're putting on a hat, or that you're putting on a, a, a shirt with, with, with a certain statement on it, it's an intentional showing of a position that's i would take both of those you know kind of as just the intention to show something but then again you know i i think that i would not automatically presume anything based on their attire Uh, i would leave it up to the attorneys to ask the questions and and make the challenges i'm just curious by the way how does the person get into the courtroom wearing a cap i thought that they had to remove something like that well, it's sitting in their lap. All right, Judge Jones. I was going to say this. This is almost the one where it's like the rubber meets the road. This is the kind where we would have seen attorneys would have just on their strikes, and this is like those close calls where you're looking at. Because I I agree with you know Anna. I don't think wearing a hat or a shirt necessarily you know is going to be grounds for cause, but it's going to be what comes up in the questioning by the attorneys you know, and kind of, you know, see which direction it goes. Uh, But it is interesting because usually people wear something, I mean, they are conveying a particular message, but something like this, you're like, just wearing the attire itself is is not enough for cause, but it's interesting to see where the questions would go. And then of course, what what the answers are um, that the potential, you know, jurors are giving. All right, and uh, Judge Weed says uh, we allow the attorneys to ask questions until we're, we are comfortable making a ruling either way. Uh, so, a uh, good point. And um, anyone else have anything uh, on this? And then the next one, what if the attorney wants to ask which cable news station the juror watches? And, and I have had attorneys who want to ask that of the group. I mean, I'm sure Michelle could to speak to this. I'm sure they ask that during capital case for Dyer. Judge, remember Judge Wilkinson? Frankie, you might remember Judge Wilkinson. He used to ask the jurors all the time if they had bumper stickers. It was right, a typical. Right, but but that in a capital case that it's so 
the consideration is different because it's an individual assessment about um, you know moral culpability in determining the death penalty but I when I read the question I thought to myself but what does that have to do with a DUI trial um, so I guess the question is what would the what how does that show anything about a juror's bias all right, Judge Jones. I was gonna say this actually happened a few years ago um, when I actually I was as an attorney during a jury trial um, out in justice court, and the defense attorney kept at, asking that question. And finally, we said, Judge, this is really irrelevant on what news station they want. You know, they watch, and he was, but he was doing this of every juror, and we were looking how long this was starting to take because we had gone like most of the morning and we had only gotten through like you know eight jurors and so by the afternoon the judge was like no this this particular question done we're not asking that because this is just blank we were getting ready to go almost to three o'clock in the afternoon and we're still picking a jury for two counts of dui a1 a2 and it was just like no wish the judges shut that down because i was like this this is getting ridiculous you know, this did not take this long because that, that doesn't matter. Now, in other cases, depending on what the facts are or what witnesses may be testifying, that, you know, maybe that has some relevance. But in a in a DUI trial where you're talking to two officers and a criminalist, um, that is not relevant. Well, and, and to me, what struck me, and, and maybe Judge Reagan would disagree here, but asking what cable news station do you watch is uh, code for who did you vote for? And would we allow someone to ask, uh, would we allow an attorney to ask a potential juror, who did you vote for? Would we? Uh, no. Would. no. No. Okay. I wouldn't. All right, so next question is, have you or a member of your family ever served in law enforcement or gone to law or medical school? Uh, any Anything here strike? Okay, what if my cousin is a bouncer at a bar in Tempe? Okay, works in a bar. Depends on whether it goes to an issue in the trial and what the potential jurors experience was at the bar in Tempe. Well, this is, this is going to be a DUI. So the bouncer at a bar is going to deal with a lot of drunk people. Well, that seems relevant. Yeah. Judge Huberman. Um, oh, I, I, I was just unmuted from before, but yeah, I agree. All right, Judge Jones. But, but, but again, you know, to me personally, this whole thing that we ask if you or a family member, you know, is this a cousin that you talk to, that you respect, that you have dealings with, or is just a cousin who lives in Detroit that, you know, you see once a year at Thanksgiving, right? I mean, that makes a difference also. I mean, I do the follow-up would see, do you talk to your cousin a lot? Does your cousin talk about, you know, their job a lot? Do they are seeing a lot of people, you know, driving drunk or having to stop them or something like that? Because I notice a lot of times jurors will say they, they'll answer that question 
And then when you do the follow-up, they'll say, you know, I don't have any contact with them. You know, it's only because you asked the question and made me think of it. And I said, oh yeah, I do have a cousin that works as a bouncer. So maybe maybe that's something I should I should tell the judge that you know they feel the need to share it, but they're not they're not sharing it as like a way they they're saying I can't be impartial to the case, but I'm really just answering the question because you asked it and I want to be honest and well yeah I do have somebody that's involved in you know doing that so maybe I, I better bring that up, but then they'll say well no I don't even see my cousin I I just thought I should tell you that because you know it's a DUI case. All right, anyone else have any comments, questions about this line of questioning? Uh, Charles, I always told people that when we ask these questions about, uh, you know, friends or relatives, I, I define that we're looking for people that you're close to, that their opinions and their statements about things that they talk to you about have an impact on you and that you you pay heed to the things that they say uh, as opposed to as uh, judge huberman said you know somebody that's a cousin you know in detroit and you haven't seen him in a couple of years and you you know maybe you, you see him uh, at a family event a reunion or something i'm looking for people that can be influenced by a a a, a close you know a relative that they're close to or a family member that they're really close to, that they respect, and that they pay attention to what that person says with the ability of that person to sway their opinion one way or another on any given topic. That's it. So I have a question though. Now that the that that a police officer can excuse be excused for jury service if they are from the same agency. Um, is that also a challenge for cause if they don't ask to be excused? Is it a challenge for cause if the if one of the lawyers so must the person be excused if one of the lawyers doesn't raise it? Well, either that either that or if the lawyer raises it, is that sufficient? I mean, if it's a reason to not sit, is it a basis for a challenge for cause without having to get the person to admit that they can't be fair and impartial? Oh, in that Eddington case, the Arizona Supreme Court said that if one of the prospective jurors um, works in the same agency that investigated the crime at trial, that juror, um, should be struck for cause regardless of their opinion about whether they can be fair and impartial. But I think it only is an issue if the lawyer raises a challenge for cause. Because otherwise right. the right. It's like what no I asked before, do we as judges, we don't bring it up. Okay. Thank you. Well, I don't know that you don't. I, yeah, that's a tough question. Like if you see something in a trial, because the rule does say that the court on its own motion. So if there's a juror that you hear something that is just um, a slam dunk or that, you know, is a challenge for cause or you don't believe that juror can be fair and impartial. 
I don't think you have to wait for a cause challenge, but I think those instances are probably limited and should be limited. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's, it's like when we ask, is there any objection to striking juror number two, right? You kind of just bring it up like that and hope that the attorneys will agree with you. Right. No, that's a good point. Like if there's then, right, if, if there is an objection and then you have to evaluate, right, the basis for the objection, because then that is an appellate issue. So what, what, an if, an attorney, what if an attorney says, officer, you are entitled to, uh, to be excused from this juror since you are on the same police force as uh, the witness, um, why are you here? Why, why didn't you excuse yourself? But that, you know, that was actually uh, an insightful question. So um, let's move on to the next one. And we did talk, highlight this earlier in the discussion. Uh, and so um, are you going to believe a law enforcement officer more than someone else? And, you know, again, for most of our careers, if, if we've been here for a while, the concern was uh, that they would believe the police officer. And um, I did a trial where I had two jurors, one where they did it individually. And, um, you know, I, I was letting the attorneys, you know, talk to this older woman. Um, and uh, all of a sudden, you know, I just heard her say, they all lie. <laughs> um, my head jerked over and I was like, I'm sorry, but what did you just say? And she said, all police officers lie. And I said, all of them? And she said, well, most of them, most of the time. Um, it's like, well, thank you. Have a nice day. Uh, you know, it, any thoughts about this particular, you know, uh, I mean, obviously that one's pretty obvious, but what about this one? Our home has been burglarized. I thought the police did not put any effort at all in the investigation. I don't think that necessarily means the juror cannot put that aside and listen to the evidence at trial. I think the question has to be posed about whether the juror um, has an opinion about all police officers or believes that, um, you know, this related just to the burglary. You gotta let the attorneys be the ones who take the lead on following up on those. Whenever I, I was gonna say, whenever I had someone that, um, as an attorney or, or even now as a judge, they make a comment like like that. Um, I always ask. I say, well, what police department? Because I mean, I think it is important to see if, if it's if it's the same police department the officers are going to be testifying. Um, you know, obviously that's relevant. They may have, you know, they're very upset with Phoenix or Scottsdale or, you know, whatever the department is uh, versus, you know, see if they could separate that out. Is it just they're upset with what happened in their individual case or whether, you know, like I said, if this is the same police department, I think that that could really be relevant because they may, you know, they may be upset with the entire department and no matter who's test. And that's, you know, if your case is Phoenix PD. They may not want to hear from any of them. So, I mean, I think you need, need to, you know, the attorneys, if the attorneys don't flush it out, I would, I would definitely do some follow-up on that. 
right? So the defense attorney, or, or excuse me, the prosecutor says to you, Judge Jones, um, juror number two thought the Phoenix police didn't put much effort into their burglary investigation. I moved to strike for cause. What do you say? I think I'd want to hear a few more questions. Uh, I mean, I understand Phoenix, but well, a little bit more of what happened, you know, in the burglary or like what what they feel wasn't properly investigated. I mean, I probably I probably am going to uphold the strike and give it for cause, but I probably would want to hear a little bit more. And the reason I'm saying is sometimes, you know, they may be upset with the police and really the police there were there no witnesses came forth. I mean, you know, depending on what happened, it may not be the police department, you know, the police officer's fault of what happened. So I might want to get a little more information just to kind of see if there, you know, if there's some, you know, like I said, bitterness, then it's been like, okay, yeah, I'll, I will grant the strike uh, for cause. So it sounds like they aren't going to be, you know, fair towards any police officers. All right. Anyone else have any thoughts? All right, here's the next one that um, is on our list of questions to ask uh, for DUIs. Are there any of you who do not drink alcoholic beverages at any time? Um, I stopped drinking alcohol when marijuana became legal. In fact, I had an edible this morning. Uh, that That's just some humor. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> All right, what if, how, how do we follow up or with, with this, or do we just turn that entirely over to the attorneys? I think the marijuana one is going to be a lot harder. Because? And I had one, because now, just like drinking alcohol, it's legal to smoke marijuana. And there's a difference between somebody who's just legally drinking or legally smoking marijuana versus the DUI, DUI drugs. And I had a DUI drugs one. We had a lot of questions and we had to ask the jurors some questions like, how do you feel about somebody who smokes marijuana? And you, you know, remember it's not illegal anymore. And great point. We're gonna need to mute you. Uh, great point, because now it just dawned on me, uh, I think we need to amend our script, and I think we need to ask, are there any of you who do not um, consume marijuana at any time, if it's a marijuana case? Do we need to do that? Well, I did. For my marijuana case, I just took the drinking questions and... and we replaced it with marijuana. Well, you might want to still leave both in because they, they may go together. So, all right, so here's, uh, you know, another question. Do any of you have, oh, uh, Judge Williams, you turned your mic on? If you're talking, you're muted.
okay, your mic has gone dead. Um, this this happens on occasion. If you can try putting it in the chat box. All right, so do any of you have personal feelings about the charge of DUI that might make it difficult for you to be completely fair and objective? All right, let's go with, I'm a contributor to MAD, which, you know, would the bumper sticker question would try to weed out, you know, did you, what if somebody has a bumper sticker that says MAD or whatever, but, um, you know, I, I'm drinking, I've driven when I shouldn't have, and thank goodness I didn't kill anybody. Yeah, that's the, the that's the strongest one out of all of them in my mind. Um, because that person is, so will that person's beliefs about drinking and driving uh, make it difficult to find someone guilty for the same conduct. Any other thoughts? All right, and the last one is the uh, another broad question. Is there any incident in your life that you feel the court should know about even though you feel it would not influence your judgment in this case? So my boyfriend's been an alcoholic since he was a teenager. It's a constant battle between us. I think I can be fair when hearing this case. Any input, Judge uh, Judge Brown? I'm still reading. <laughs> okay. Judge I think uh, in that first instance, the issue that hits me is the fact that it's a constant battle. Uh, which uh, would indicate a need for a little further questioning. Okay, good catch. Yes, uh, it is a constant paddle, um, but I think I can be fair. Um, what about, I, I think I have nephews and nieces who use marijuana and get drunk regularly. Um, I mean, I think like everything we've talked about, you know, this definitely requires follow-up to know where everyone stands on the positions. I would say that someone who's used to living with people who are heavy drinkers or alcoholics are also used to thinking that people can drink a lot and still drive perfectly well. So, you know, those considerations could go either way. Um I, I I don't know that you can jump to any conclusion based on on any of this. Um, someone who lives with an alcoholic doesn't necessarily hate all alcoholics, or doesn't necessarily think that all alcoholics are criminals. And 
So I think all of this just needs to be flushed out as to more information. And yeah, and, and some of the follow-up questions, uh, like when they had someone in their past who um, has a DUI, um, do they still drink alcohol? Or are you still with them? So uh, we do want to have that follow-up. Any any other thoughts or, or comments about the scenarios? All right, Judge uh, Driggs, do you want to tell us about the the new Driggs jury instruction? I'm coming. All right. Um, so my husband's a superior court judge and criminal, and he was doing a jury trial and it was a three day jury trial. And on day three, um, right before our closing arguments, they all went to lunch and another judge saw six of his jurors having lunch together and drinking beers together um, during lunch and took a picture and sent it to him and said, is this your jury? And he was able to identify that, yes, it was his jury. And um, so he he didn't feel comfortable telling adults that they couldn't drink during lunch because he doesn't know if that would impair them or not. But he also didn't feel comfortable moving forward. So he said something came up and we'll have to continue this until tomorrow. I will buy you lunch tomorrow and we'll work through lunch. Um, so now he feels like the new instructions that he's going to give is that you know, you may go to lunch, but please do not drink any um, alcoholic beverages or anything. I guess you could add smoke weed while on your lunch break um, so that you or will not be impaired at all. Bears during the trial. <laughs> right. So, yeah, I mean, and, and you wouldn't think that you have to say something like that, but obviously uh, we now know that we may have to um, add to our admonishment um, our standard admonishment not to consume alcohol or mind-altering drugs during the trial. Uh, and uh, uh, Judge Williams, who, who, uh, whose microphone no longer works, had a defense attorney in a DUI case ask a question to the entire panel that was designed to find members of the LDS. He asked something like, do any of you belong to an organization whose doctrine and covenants prohibit the use of alcoholic beverages? Uh, the deputy county attorney seemed okay with the question, so I didn't do anything. Well, and and that's you know basically, you know one a little more specific than this one. Uh, but what does everyone think about that? If I mean to be that basically that blunt to ask, are there any Mormons present? Well, I've been on many juries. And that question's been asked and I don't drink because I am LDS and it hasn't kept me off the jury of um, DUI trials. But I guess it could be different for, you know, whatever attorneys are there. But for me, it hasn't been an issue and, and I don't feel bad that I'm asked that. And I know that there are other people who never drink either and it may not be for religious reasons or it may be because I think there are other religions that don't drink as well. Okay. That's my personal right. Do we have any closing thoughts? Oh, can I just add on the religion? So the Arizona Constitution prohibits disqualifying a juror because of his or her religious views. Um, but that, you know, 
so you can't, as you say, beware, you can't base it on their religious views. So that defense attorney is going to have to dig until they say something uh, that is more clear that they cannot be fair or uh, that they cannot render a fair decision. Right, right, right. All right, Judge Jones, closing thoughts? You know, it's just kind of like what I said earlier. You know, it's new territory, so we're all in this together. Um, don't feel you're by yourself. We always encourage uh, everyone to reach out. We, we do at our court, but I always, I get texts from other judges, you know, because like I said, we're in this together. So feel free if you have any questions or something comes up that's obscure or you think is odd, don't hesitate. Send an email, send a text, say, hey, I've got this issue coming up. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? I know I'm always glad to talk to people about things. Thank you. Professor Hinshaw, did you hear anything that uh, raised any ethical concerns? Um, no, nothing that raised ethical concerns. I am still surprised that there was the case of being in the same prosecutor's office. I mean, I found that completely stunning, which I mentioned in the chat, but um, nothing from uh, an ethics standpoint, a judicial okay. ethics standpoint. All right, Judge Huberman, the, the last word. Uh, no, I thought this was, I'd like to, to thank both of you. Uh, I, I did a great job presenting. I think that um, this is a, a great topic. And uh, I think that, you know, you're right that this is new territory and uh, we'll see how it goes. I do have a a feeling that in justice court, things will run probably more, or, or in city courts, a little bit more smoothly. Um, and I, it doesn't appear to have been created much of a problem now. I think that the attorneys uh, will adjust. Um, I think that if there are to be challenges or complaints, I don't think it'll come from the limited jurisdiction, but we'll see. All right, thank you everybody. Uh, and uh, again, the CoJet certificate is the last page of the packet. Uh, if everything worked well, this will be uh, uploaded to YouTube and as a, an audio only podcast. Have a great day and have a great weekend. Bye bye. Mike Reagan, Mike, are you still there? Can you stay? This conference will now be recorded. Yeah, I'm still here.